As a lawyer, ever wish you could be in two places at once? You could take a call when you're in court, capture a lead during a meeting. That's where Posh comes in. We're live virtual receptionists who answer and transfer your calls. With Posh, you can save as much as 40% off your current service provider's rates. Start your free trial today at Posh.com. Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I am here with my co-host, Alex Lawson. Hi, Amber. How are you? Doing okay. Um, I know right up top, you have a very important correction we have to get on the record. I do want to correct the record. Um, as people know, you listened to last week's show. This is our first show in the post-Bill Donahue era. Uh, I don't know if he's listening. Uh, if he is, uh, we wish him well. If he's not, um, I wish him the worst, frankly. Uh <laughs> No, but uh, it is fitting that one of the last things he said on the podcast uh, is a material error that requires correction. Uh, sure. When we were talking about how even though he doesn't work here anymore, we're going to continue. He and I will continue to be friends. He mentioned that we live six blocks away. It's closer to sixteen blocks, uh, depending on if you count the long one twice. Um, okay. But- so you're putting that down as a material correction that needed to be on the record, and I do agree <laughs> with that just on the face of it, but. I view that as a statement of optimism. It only feels like six blocks because you guys are close. Yeah, that's that's a good way to look at it. The reason I thought it was a material correction is because I think it it it, it weighs it weighs just slightly more in favor of us not hanging out as much. And I want right. that to be clear. I, again, if he's listening, you know, I want him to feel bad, basically. I um, think but what no. you're saying is if he's listening, <laughs> he needs to move about 10 blocks closer to you. Yeah, sure. Uh, that's right. that. I mean, he, he he can do whatever he wants. I'm not his keeper. <laughs> anyway, we miss you, Bill. Uh, we do have a show to get to. Quite a good one, I would say, because yeah. it's uh, it is in, in addition to being spooky season, which we'll talk about at the end of the show. It is uh, Supreme Court season, and that this means is truly my favorite time of the year because I love spooky season and I love the Supreme Court. Yes. Um, and to do that, we enlisted the help of our Supreme Court ace, Jimmy Hoover, who is also the co-host of The Term. It's the term season. They're back. Uh, so definitely listen to that. Um, we went over um, some of the more high profile cases with Jimmy as uh, big, big abortion case, big gun rights case and a few other ones. Um, also discussed some changes to the argument format that are kind of a holdover from the pandemic era jimmy's always great and uh today was uh was no exception yeah this was definitely the episode that if anybody's just sort of getting their head back in the game of following the supreme court this is the one for you it'll get you all set up as we head into the the start of the term for sure um we do have some news to get to first actually and there was a bit of drama this week in the new york state court system as administrators there sent um, somewhere in the neighborhood of about 300 employees home. They expelled them from the court on Monday because they had failed to comply with the court's uh, vaccine mandate. Uh, they have a vac- the, the state court has a vaccine mandate. That took effect Monday. There were, there were some, like I say, there were somewhere in the neighborhood of 300 employees that had not complied and they were expelled. That initial group included three sitting judges within the court, um, but also it did not apply to... Uh, there are like thousands of employees whose union reps are actively suing the court over uh, the mandate. So there's a lot of moving parts here. And it was uh, it caused quite a stir for sort of the uh, New York legal world. Yeah. As vaccine mandates have become more prevalent, there's been a lot of 
talk about the mandates themselves, but we haven't seen exactly what happens when they're in practice. This is some of the look behind the curtains of what this is going to be like in various judicial systems if if a bunch of places have these. So mm-hmm. um, what's going on in New York exactly? Um, break it down for me. Yeah. Um, so like I say, we are talking about the state court systems, not the SDNY. Um, the state court system employs about 15,000 people and they have a vaccine mandate that took effect on Monday. And soon after that happened, our own Frank Runyon, uh, regularly providing pro se content. We thank him for that. Um, he reported that about 333 workers had not complied with the mandate um, and they had not uh, filed an adequate, there are carve-outs for medical and religious exemptions. They didn't qualify for those either. They just straight up hadn't complied. They were sent home. And that included three of the court system's roughly 1,300 judges who were ordered to work from home. They were barred um, from even entering their own chambers. Um, none of the judges or even any of the employees were identified. We don't even know like what level of the system um they are judges in, but that's what we know, the numbers. Um, it's also moving pretty quickly. Frank updated after his initial story was filed, and I think he's going to file again. This is interesting to you. We will link to current coverage in the notes. Um, two of the three judges that were initially suspended are now back at work, either because they either received a vaccine dose or they it's possible they maybe cleared up some sort of error in documenting it, um, and that uh, the number of employees that are currently barred from the court uh, for failure to comply with the mandate now sits at 282 um, out of 15,000. It's roughly whatever you do the math, roughly under 3% or so. Um, uh, like I say, it is moving quickly. Uh, it may get whittled down. Uh, so keep an eye on that if that's of interest to you. Yeah, I, I know you also said this one was a bit muddied as well because there's been some lawsuits. Let's talk about those. Yeah, so the the matter of like the actual expulsions of court employees was kind of like a gossipy story. It definitely got people in like New York legal circles talking. I was like, it was like three hundred people got sent home from court. That's kind of wild, um, and you can see why. But the bigger story might actually be um, several pending legal challenges to the court's vaccine mandate. And as I said, there are about fifteen thousand employees in New York's court system, and about uh, like over half of them are currently exempted from the mandate because of lawsuits from two unions. This is the Civil Service Employees Association and the Supreme Court Officers Association. They have, both of those unions, uh, secured restraining orders in these lawsuits uh, last week that barred the courts from enforcing the mandate against its members. And that covers about 7,300 employees that are currently not subject to the mandate. Now, I do think it's important to stress here. We don't know that there are that many people unvaccinated working in the courts. All it means is that they're not subject to the mandate. I mean, you can go out and get a vaccine of your own volition if you want, but it just means that the unions have have gotten a restraining order on the enforcement of the mandate. So we don't know what the number is now of that contingent of people who aren't vaccinated. All it means is that they don't have to be vaccinated in order to work there right now. Um, The lawsuits are somewhat procedural in nature, like a lot of management union type of stuff, even though this happens to be happening in a court context. They say that the court basically went ahead with this mandate without proper consultation with the union, violates their agreement. Frank uh, Runyon also reported that there are other unions uh, within that cover other uh, employees within the court system uh, that have filed claims with the Oversight Board, which is called the Public Employment Relations Board may soon file suits of their own. Um, And the fate of those cases will likely have a pretty significant bearing on the number of employees who 
may be barred from working at the court. We're, we're, we're just at the uh, restraining order stage at this point. Um, for now, uh, there was a court spokesman who gave Frank a quote, said, quote, uh, you know, d- despite all of the attention that these expulsions got, the, the spokesman said, quote, none of this had any direct impact on court operations statewide. So they're sort of framing it as a little more of a blip than a dramatic upheaval. We will see what comes down the pike with these lawsuits, though. So um, stay tuned. For our next story, um, I want to talk about a dispute. I mean, we almost always are talking about disputes on Pro Se. It's, that's what gets things into the legal system. It is. That, it does make up quite a lot of the content <laughs> here, yes. But usually what we're talking about is focusing on the two parties in litigation. Mm-hmm. This story is a little bit different. That's part of why I like it. It's about a legal dispute where the real tension is actually between two courts. Yes. Um, the, what's going on here is the Federal Circuit on Friday ordered U.S. District Judge Alan Albright to transfer six, um, it's a, a group called WSOU Investments. They'd filed patent infringement suits against Juniper Networks. So two companies, um, they wanted the suit transferred from Texas to California. The appellate mm-hmm. court said that WSOU can't use a Texas litigation office to justify venue and went on to basically say Judge Albright had gotten this all wrong and ignored recent rulings against him and should have transferred this case. I bring this up, too, not because it's not a one-off. This is part of a bigger war between Albright and the Federal Circuit. The Federal Circuit's issued a bunch of rulings in recent months, basically taking Albright to task for refusing to transfer patent cases out of his jurisdiction. First of all, Great job uh, sort of obscuring the fact that we're talking about patent cases, because it is actually (laughs) super interesting uh, just in terms of we always get a kick out of when appeals judges are kind of wagging their finger at the lower court uh, guys, especially on matters of procedure. And this is about venue. And we have also talked before about um, the little Texas patent fiefdoms where obviously a lot of the uh, subject matter demands a California presence. And that's what this is about. But you reference that this is not the first time that this Texas judge Albright has gotten uh, has gotten read the riot act. What uh, what's that all about? Yeah, I want to get into exactly what Albright's up to here. But I, I take your point, Alex. Um, this one <laughs> is about procedure, venue, patents. It doesn't sound as exciting as this actually is. This is a really fun and interesting little war yeah. turf war that's going on. So Judge Albright took the bench about three years ago in the Western District of Texas, and he was immediately very vocal about how he was super into patent litigation. He loves it. He wants to do a ton of it. Um, That's what he'd like to see in his court. What a nerd. First of all, what a nerd. (laughs) Look, some of us love IP. I don't know what to tell you. I get it. Uh, Okay, so he's a patent guy, wants to be a patent guy. And Mm -hmm. he basically said he would try cases really quickly. His his rules of his court would make them move fast. And he publicly said he would rarely put them on hold for America Invents Act reviews. Those are the administrative proceedings that are over patent validity. And some other courts have cited those when they pause parallel litigation. So Albright was like, well, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to fast track a bunch of stuff. Given that stance, patent owners flocked to the Western District of Texas. Of course. And then a bunch of accused infringers have all been like, uh, we need to transfer this case out of here. So mm-hmm. you can see the, the tension just based on sort of the stance of his court. And for many months, the judge denied virtually all the transfer requests. Like there were very few that he would grant. And he had some justifications for what he was doing. He would usually bring up that when he's denying a transfer motion, he 
would highlight that rapid trial schedule, saying that it was in the interest of, you know, judicial economy and speed to stay where they were. And the facilities operated by many of the defendants were often in and around Austin, which is in his district. Mm -hmm. And um, there's a lot of tech stuff there now. And also places started opening offices there. Um, Mm -hmm. So he would cite that as a reason to keep cases in his district. That would be the nexus he would point to. Yeah. I know there are lots of different factors that go into like what's the proper venue, which can get a little thorny. Um, but let's just cut right to it. I mean, what did the he has he has tried to keep these these cases in his little uh, playpen. Federal Circuit doesn't sound like it's uh, really having it. Yeah, they straight up disagree with all of Albright's reasoning and pretty much all the transfer stuff. I mean, no bones about it. They just don't agree. Mm-hmm. Um, the court has ma- the federal circuit has mandated yes. transfers seven times since July 2020 and described the judge's rulings as, quote, clearly flawed uh, and showing, quote, blatant disregard for precedent. So they're not mincing words. They're just like, all right, you're wrong. Transfer the case. Yes. Um, So we this has happened before and now it's happened again. What was going on with the cases this week? Why are we talking about it now? Yeah, um, I just wanted to highlight this one. It's not really that different from some of the others, but I think it's just a good example on the most recent one. So On Friday, the Federal Circuit issued a precedential opinion Mm. and basically said, hey, Judge Albright, cut it out. I mean, they basically rested on things they've said before. Yeah. The court says Albright gave too much weight to the fact that Juniper and WSOU have offices in Texas and too little weight to the multitude of witnesses that were going to be based in north in the northern district of california where they mm-hmm. wanted to transfer the suit yes juniper is the one that had moved to get the litigation transferred to california and they pointed out that wsau's only ties to the western district of texas were an office it actually set up for litigation like yeah to well, you give it venue you had just mentioned that that i mean people know austin has attracted you know tech yep. uh, investment and stuff like that but then you as you indicated there are some people also set up a business presence so you can litigate there. Yeah. So yeah. Juniper pointed out that the top brass of WSOU live in California and Juniper employees who would be needed in the litigation are also in California. And so that was their crux of their argument. Like, hey, this should just all be in California. Albright didn't care. He said the convenience of where witnesses are located should be given less weight compared to other facts, like which jurisdiction has greater local interest. And then he, he weighed his own ability to fast track cases and and that kind of stuff as in the local interest and in the interest of the case. So that's Mm -hmm. how he tried to keep it where it was. When this got to the federal circuit, they just said he was wrong. They stressed that Albright went against its case law. They said, um, and this is the quote from the federal circuit, as we have previously explained, the relative convenience for and cost of attendance of witnesses between the two forums is probably the single most important factor in transfer analysis. So the opposite of what the opposite, Albright really. said. Yeah. He said it uh, wasn't that important. They said, actually, it's the most important. So <laughs> uh, what are you doing here? Yeah. yeah. So Albright has also stressed that he'll get cases adjudicated faster. Yeah. And um, the Federal Circuit also slammed him on that and said that compared to California, there's no significant differences in case caseload or time to trial statistics. So they really just were having none of it. Okay. Um, he's a repeat offender. They said so in the thing. They said they, they gave him the old, we have said this many times before. You messed it up <laughs> yeah. then. What can we take away from it? Is this going to keep happening or, or what's well, going on? I had this whole uh, whole thing uh, 
worked up to say like, yeah, I mean, Albright's going to Albright and this might go on a bunch more. Yeah, right. But smartly, I had a quick chat with our own Ryan Davis, who's written about this a lot. I also want to mm. shout out Danny Cass, who yeah. there are two senior patent reporters. They've both written about this extensively. But Ryan sort of gave me a slightly more tempered view after talking to him. What's going on is that um, Albright currently oversees at least a quarter of all new patent litigation. So he's been mm -hmm. pretty successful in building this fiefdom, if you will. Yeah, that's important to say, too. I, it, I don't want to make it. I mean, it's we, we, we get a kick out of when, uh, you know, lower judges get a rebuke. But it's not like he's getting it's not like cases are getting booted all the time. Quite the right. opposite, in fact. Yeah. Yeah. So he has a and I think this also sort of shows why this can be a big problem when one judge has this conflict with the federal circuit because he's he's handling so much. Mm -hmm. um, so the federal circuit has repeatedly had to force him to transfer cases and it's been against big brand name um, defendants. It's been in cases against Hulu, Dish Network, Apple. There's been a bunch of them. But publicly, after some of these rulings have come down from the Fed circuit, Albright has said he's listening and that he's taking into account what they are saying is the proper analysis. Now, what that means is still a little unclear remains to be seen. Judge Albright, did... I am listening. I am <laughs> hearing you. I am doing the work. I'm stepping back. No. Yeah. He did put out an order that said he won't drag his feet on deciding transfer motions, which in mm -hmm. some of this litigation has been a problem that, that uh, people have complained that they would file for transfer motion and Albright would take a long time to rule on that basically as a way to continue keeping the case. Yeah. Um, so he did say he would stop doing that. And, you know, like I said, it remains to be seen whether this war between Fed Circuit and Albright is really over. Um, but one thing I can say, there's already some cases in the pipeline that Albright's denied transfer. So we may see some of that trickle to the federal circuit because it's already happened. Mm -hmm. um, but I think a few months from now is where the rubber may really meet the road to see how new transfer motions are handled by Albright. So it's just a really interesting one where you can see the two courts with power kind of butting up against each other and how much that can impact big cases. Definitely. As a lawyer, ever wish you could be in two places at once? You could take a call when you're in court, capture a lead during a meeting. That's where Posh comes in. We're live virtual receptionists who answer and transfer your calls. With Posh, you can save as much as 40% off your current service provider's rates. Start your free trial today at posh.com. A new Supreme Court term is upon us, with the justices set to tackle a slew of lightning rod cases, including a direct challenge to Roe v. Wade, and its first major gun rights case in over a decade. Here to break it all down for us is our Supreme Court reporter and the co-host of Law 360's The Term. It's Jimmy Hoover. Welcome back to the show, Jimmy. Great to see you. Yeah, great to see you, Alex. Thanks for having me on. It's uh, it's it's Supreme Court season. That means it's Jimmy Hoover season. You are back. That's right. Uh, out of the out of you're like the groundhog, except instead of being out for a few minutes, you're back for six whole months. So it's great to see you again. Uh, so before we get into the cases, um, you wrote an interesting feature for us a few days ago that gets into what the arguments, um, how Supreme Court arguments are actually going to look this term as we are sort of still in the lingering uh, stages of the pandemic. Uh, last year, of course, was an unprecedented one, and it sort of improved access to the courts in a lot of ways. You know, you could just dial into arguments and things like that. Um, what's that going to look like now? You wrote about how it's sort of like a hybrid approach. 
give us a sense of that. Yeah, so well, first of all, we didn't know until kind of late in the summer recess whether the court would come back at all. And then they mm-hmm. said, yes, the Supreme Court is going to return to open court um, okay. as opposed to these telephone arguments that they had been doing since March of 2020 during the start of the pandemic. So this is their first return, but it's not quite business as usual. Um, there are a couple of important distinctions, one being that the public is no longer going to be sitting in the gallery. They're like limiting the amount of people actually in the courtroom to just kind of a select few journalists, court staff, and the justices themselves, obviously. Um, But also the argument format will be slightly tweaked. Um, So I don't know if you guys remember this, but um, they wanted to avoid the kind of free-for-all people talking over one another while they were in the remote setting. So they did um, Siriatim, I guess it's how it's pronounced, basically ordered questionings by order of seniority. So mm-hmm. um, it would go the chief justice first, followed by the rest of the justices um, by seniority. And that produced kind of some interesting things. Um, namely, I would say Clarence Thomas, you know, the the perennial, right. perennially silent justice loved this format and so he was talking up a storm during during every case because he likes the opportunity to kind of have designated um you know question time where his colleagues aren't going to be stepping on his toes right Mm -hmm. um and, and i think a lot of his colleagues took note of that preference and this is basically all speculation on my part but i think that they wanted to preserve clarence thomas's participation going back to an open court setting. And so instead of just going back completely to their old ways of a free-for-all, yeah, um, they're doing a hybrid. They're doing a mixed format where um, the, the beginning part of an advocate's argument is going to be that traditional kind of hot bench, uh, justices kind of peppering the advocates with questions in no particular order. And mm-hmm. then at the end of an advocate's um, argument, they are going to give the justices in this orderly format, an opportunity to ask any questions that they weren't able to get to. So I don't know if you guys have noticed this, but in a group setting, when it's this unstructured format, some people talk more than others. And I think they were thinking that maybe sure. Clarence Thomas wanted that that little courtesy. Mm-hmm. I really love the idea that the justices are like so many other workplaces where they're like, you know what? We learned some lessons from this remote work <laughs> we've had to do. We're going to yeah. keep some of the ones we think worked out. Right. Um, it only took 28 years of Clarence Thomas being on the court until they <laughs> started to accommodate him. <laughs> um, so that'll be interesting to watch play out during this term. But one other sort of big overarching thing is that I think everybody watching the Supreme Court knows that there's a lot of blockbuster level cases this term in real hot button issues. So to kick us off, I, I really wanted to talk about The two that I think are most on people's minds, um, cases about abortion and gun rights. Can you tell us a bit more about those? Yeah, absolutely. So the the big ticket item, I should say the big ticket items, because I would say they're probably on par in in terms of uh, public scrutiny that they're going to get. But uh, the Dobbs case that's that's coming up for oral arguments in December is the biggest threat to um, the landmark abortion ruling Roe versus Wade in, you know, 30 years, essentially, since the Casey decision. And it really gives the court's new conservative majority mm-hmm. an opportunity to finally kind of put the death knell into Roe um, after, you know, basically voicing criticism of it for, for many years. The numbers are just there in terms of their the number of justices on the court. Um, potentially, I don't want to say as if it's a sure thing, because obviously there are some question marks around 
uh, Justice Brett Kavanaugh and what he's going to do in this case, but a little bit of background is this is a challenge to a Mississippi law that prohibits virtually all abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. Now, 15 weeks is a period before a fetus is viable outside the womb and therefore under the court's current abortion jurisprudence, unconstitutional. Mm -hmm. So even abortion providers say there's realistically no way that the court can uphold this 15-week ban and also uphold Roe. If they uphold this ban, and even if they don't nominally say we're getting rid of Roe versus Wade, that mm. will be the effect. It will be to drastically um, reduce um, the the constitutional protection for abortion and basically open the floodgates for states around the country to enact a raft of restrictive, a raft of abortion restrictions. And those are really the stakes of the case. I mean, we saw Mm -hmm. over the summer there was that decision um, by the Supreme Court to let uh, a Texas abortion ban take effect after six weeks, or I should say the ban was for abortions after six weeks. But that was really a procedural ruling. Right. Even though the effect was the same, right? Mm -hmm. Um, uh, The court was clear that they were not actually ruling on the merits of Roe versus Wade. That's the Dobbs case that's going to be arguing on December 1st. That's the big one. Um, and, and, And it's just, you know, there are... We're obviously all waiting for oral arguments to see kind of where these um, key justices are going to come out on this, Barrett, Kavanaugh, and Roberts, but really it's probably going to come down to Kavanaugh. So that, I guess, is the abortion one. Okay. Uh, and I know that they, for, uh, I, I, I said it in the intro there, guns rights always come up in any Supreme Court confirmation uh, hearing context. There are cases filed over all the time, but it's been a, it's been several years since they took on like a really substantive gun rights case, and we're going to see that this term, isn't that right? Yeah, no, this is the biggest one since the 2008 decision in District of Columbia versus Heller, where mm-hmm. um, writing for the court, Justice Antonin Scalia held that the Second Amendment protects an individual right to bear arms in the home, to keep firearms inside the home. And that's an important qualifier because... A number of states, like New York, um, kept very strict restrictions on concealed carry licenses. And in the state of New York, uh, it's pretty hard to get one. You need a proper cause. You need to show a special need for self-defense. And so it's like unless you have very rare circumstances, you're it's almost impossible for you to just have a general concealed carry license where you could just walk around with a firearm. And now a group of Uh, gun rights advocates um, are challenging that law, basically saying that this is undermining the Second Amendment. And they Mm -hmm. they want the Supreme Court to take that further step of saying, not only do people have an individual right um, to keep firearms at home, but they also have a right to carry them around in public. And so um, there's this question about how far the court is going to go, whether they're and how many... um, equivalent state laws may fall if they strike down this New York law. Um, I was on a call with some uh, uh, gun control advocates who say six other states have equivalent laws that could be very vulnerable to legal challenge should this Mm -hmm. one be um, stricken in that they say that statistics have shown that in the absence of these laws, gun violence does increase. And so Mm -hmm. it's really going to be a test for the court as to where they pay attention to, to or how, how much weight they give to different evidence, right? So right. this can either be a case that's won and lost on 
on these originalist arguments of what the framers' original understanding of the Constitution was and the, their original understanding of the Second Amendment, whether at the time of the founding it in fact protected this right to carry around guns, mm-hmm. or whether they'll also be amenable to different potentially policy arguments in the present day and whether um, you know, basically the, the conversation has shifted. And I think in the case of New York's law, it's been on the books for about a century now. And so yeah. I think that that precedent in that history is a is something that the gun control uh, is that the state of New York and that a lot of uh, gun control advocates, as amicus in this case, are pointing to as a reason why the court shouldn't take that step. But I think this is an, once again, like in the Roe case, yeah. um, this is an opportunity for the the court's new conservatives to really flex their muscle and to deliver a prized and long sought victory for uh, the political right. It's really understandable hearing you talk about the abortion and gun rights cases, why they are so watched right now. They could be real blockbusters, but they're not the only thorny issues that the court has on their docket this year. Um, I'd love to hear you talk about one that's about state funding for religious schools. No, I think that's absolutely right. That the area of religious freedom in, in, in general is one where the court's conservatives have been trying to move the law to the right for years now. And so you you mentioned the, the case of uh, Maine's tuition assistance program. And this is a, a state program in Maine um, that they've had for years on the books where basically um, students who live in a school district where there's not a local public high school, mm-hmm. they get to have tuition assistance from um, the state to basically attend uh, a private school of their choice. Um, the question is, is whether um, Maine's exclusion of sectarian schools from those um, list of you know available funding, is that a violation of the Constitution? And they make several constitutional arguments, but uh, I think one that's going to have particular salience for the justices is the one under the free exercise clause of the Constitution. And this is similar to uh, two other cases, um, Montana Department of Revenue versus Espinoza from 2020, and there was a a case called Trinity Lutheran from 2017. And these were very similar in that the court held that you can't just exclude religious groups from a generally available state funding program just based on their status as religious groups, as a religious school. This one poses like a slight variation on that question because the First Circuit basically said, oh, our program doesn't violate those precedents of the Supreme Court because Mm -hmm. in those cases, the state was excluding those schools based on their status as religious groups. In this case... We are excluding these schools from state funding because of their use of the funds. So there's this like they looked into the usages of the funds and they said there's these are going to be used for all sorts of Bible studies to create an education uh, in Christ, essentially, Mm -hmm. that is divergent from their equivalent public school education. So they say the Supreme Court has only said that these status um, restrictions is okay are, are are unconstitutional, but we were at, we actually took the further step of looking into use, and this is again the the, cons- the court's conservatives for years have wanted to get rid of this distinction between uh, use and status. They say it's a distinction without a difference. Yep. results is the same discrimination against religion, um, but obviously uh, uh, defenders of this main tuition assistance program say that it is a vital. Um, uh, a vital policy in order to not f- uh, run afoul of the establishment clause of the right. Constitution, which says the state shall not establish an official religion, and that state funding 
of religion is is unconstitutional. And so it's it's this classic tension between those two um, things of the separation between church and state. And that's just one um, First Amendment case. I mean, this morning the court took up another case about whether Boston, the city of Boston, could exclude a Christian group's yeah, flag mm-hmm. from like basically the uh, Boston has this thing. I didn't even know it was a thing. It's called like the city hall of flagpoles or something. And and different groups can come up and put their flag in basically the city center and they have like a little event. Well, they've had like 280 something applicants. None of them have been rejected until now there's this religious group that wants to raise this like flag with their cross on it. And this, the city said no, and they make the argument that, you know, this is a this is a public forum and you're depriving us of our ability to speak. That's viewpoint discrimination in violation of the First Amendment. And I just think that it's it's a trend that we've been seeing at the court for years. I mean, yep. this is probably not a case you would have seen like 20 years ago at the Supreme Court. I think maybe they would have said, of course, in that, in that day and age, it was unlikely for the court to have said that that's something that Boston would be essentially forced to do is to raise a um, a flag with a with a cross on it. I think the terms of the debate were pretty different back then, but it just goes to show how how kind of far the court has come in recognizing some of the claims of these religious groups, you know, for better or worse, depending on how you feel about the issue. Sure. Um, yeah, de- definitely no shortage of intrigue on the uh, religion issue up at the up at the court, and that's going to continue to be the case. The other one that uh, re- really struck me, um, and it's a sort of a weedy case, but it basically deals with like the the protection of state secrets in like legal proceedings, and it's notably the case has been brought by a man who is currently detained in in Guantanamo Bay on suspicions of terrorism. Can you walk us through that one real quick? Yeah, this one's called U- U.S. versus Zubaida, and, and it is really interesting. It's got one of those fact patterns where you read into it and you're like, "Oh, this is, you know, this is fascinating." So Zubaida was basically the the, the first um, detainee of the of the U.S. war on terror. He was mm-hmm. um, said to be a, an associate of Bin Laden, and he was captured abroad, obviously, and spent time in the custody of the CIA, who we now know as a result of the Senate Intelligence Committee's report on uh, the CIA's torture program, that he was he was tortured extensively. He was tortured um, by the government, yeah. He was tortured by the government. It's an undisputed fact. It's actually, they, they admit to it in, in, the, in, the, in the government's brief to the Supreme Court in the case. Yes. Um, but it, it, this case actually doesn't deal with, you know, was he or was he not tortured, this deals with a matter of state secrecy as to that torture program. So Abu Zubaydah has been in custody this entire time, and he has since filed a criminal complaint in Poland um, where he alleges that uh, government officials in that country basically aided and abetted his torture at the hands of his CIA captors. Yeah. And um, this is a case that's been in, like, numerous countries and international tribunals, and now it's in the U.S. because what Zubaida is trying to do is he's trying to collect evidence on behalf of this criminal case now that's now proceeding in Poland. And the way he's doing that is basically suing these two CIA contractors who are known to have been integral to the CIA's torture program and basically get them and subpoena them for evidence of the CIA's torture program in Poland under this U.S. statute that basically provides that it gives um, parties to a foreign criminal proceeding a mechanism to subpoena uh, U.S. parties in U.S. court. Right Now, 
the the government intervened in the case and said, no, we're not going to let this, we're going to move to quash the subpoena because we don't want the evidence of our CIA black sites in an unnamed country to be public. Now, it, it, should, it, it should be said that there has been extensive reporting. Yeah, um, as, and, as we've said, it's, it's not really a, a, a disputed fact, as you say. Right, and, 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 you've, and you've seen, obviously, uh, you've, you've had former Polish officials confirm that there was a CIA black site in Poland. There's been extensive investigative reporting establishing that fact. But the U.S. government to this day has not disclosed the, the countries where it operated these black sites. And they, say, they, they give them, in the CIA um, torture report, they're basically listed as colors, like green or, or, or red or something mm-hmm. like that. And they are still fighting tooth and nail to keep that information secret, even at, even at this point after, after so much has already been disclosed about the programs. Um, and this is something that they have taken all the way to the Supreme Court saying that basically it should be enough that we are telling the court that um, we don't want this information to be public. It's a matter of like international diplomacy, way beyond the authority level of an individual district judge or even a circuit court. I think it was the Ninth Circuit that ruled against the government in this case. Mm -hmm. And so this has now gone up to the Supreme Court, and it is going to um, look into whether this information should be kept secret or whether... Um, these CIA contractors should have to comply with the subpoena. Jimmy, you've so ably laid out all of these big ones that we should have on our radar, but I know there's just tons going on this term that's interesting. I wanted to do a little quick hit round with you of any others that you think our listeners should be should be watching out for. No, absolutely. I mean, there's a, there's a ton, right? So there's the um, there's the government's appeal to reinstate the death sentence for the younger the younger of the two Boston bombers. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a uh, another First Amendment case involving um, a death penalty inmate who is uh, seeking to have his Christian pastor in his execution chamber vocalizing prayer and, and touching him, and his prison officials have denied him that. And so the question is whether he's entitled to that um, under, the, under the First Amendment. Um, and, you know, there, there's a Kentucky abortion case that's not quite an abortion case. It's whether the state attorney general has the authority to intervene in defense of Kentucky's abortion law. In that case, that's going to involve some interesting questions of federalism. And I could go on, but this is all to say that, you know, this is a time where the Supreme Court is under, I would say, pretty intense scrutiny basically yeah. from all sides about, you know, whether we're talking about its use of the so-called shadow docket to decide these emergency orders on pretty controversial questions, or just the usual lineups that we've been seeing. There is a clamoring among uh, the left to essentially reform the court, either by um, packing it with uh, new justices or by uh, introducing reforms like life tenure yep. um, for the justices. And, and so I think what this term presents in this moment is kind of a... Uh, a, a choice for the court's conservatives as to how fast they go in the face of all of this public scrutiny to advance the law in the direction that we already know they want to take it because of their 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 previous writings. And the, and the jury's really still out on that. And I think, well, obviously, you know, when the ink dries in July of 2022, 
on you know in the in the midst of an election year. Yep. Um, what will what will we be saying about the court? And um, will we be saying that you know it's a super hyper partisan um, institution that has basically sullied its reputation even further than it already was? Um, will we be hearing claims of that, or will we be seeing similar? Um, narratives that maybe perhaps the rhetoric is pretty overblown because the justices managed to strike some rare alliances, rare compromises. They avoid overruling Roe, or perhaps they don't go as quite as far or as fast as many people anticipated. And and it's really still an open uh, question as to as to what the court does. But they, they will certainly have no shortage of scrutiny. Well, Jimmy, mark it down in your calendar for July 2022. We'll have you back to have that exact conversation about where we land because this is going to be such a wild ride, I think, this year to yeah. watch the, the court play out. I also just want to remind our listeners, Jimmy is the host of the Term Podcast, and week to week he'll be talking about all the hot action going on in the Supreme Court. We'll also touch base throughout the term on Pro Se as well. So we'll have it all covered. I'm excited for it, guys. Thanks for having me on, guys. Thanks, Jimmy. We like to end our show with something offbeat. And as Alex said at the top of the show, we're entering spooky season. So we have one perfect for that. Yeah. Um, the, the, the incident we're talking about um, actually happened a couple of weeks ago, but it does dovetail nicely as the leaves change and the spirits walk among us. Uh, here's the deal. Two weeks ago, a Texas attorney named Mark Metzger went for a walk on the beach in the city of Galveston. Now, this is not really a newsworthy occurrence, um, except for two key facts. First of all, it happened while a tropical storm was bearing down on the city, wind and rain, uh, you know, swirling around him. And probably more importantly, he was dressed as Michael Myers, the killer from the Halloween uh, movie series, and carrying what appeared to be a bloody knife just on the beach. I... Amber, love your thoughts? This story already. I love it so much because I think it is well known to our pro se listeners that I love horror movies. It's my jam. The fall is my season. I feel like my spirit comes alive this time of year. And I would absolutely love to see someone walking around in the middle <laughs> of a storm dressed like an iconic serial killer from a movie. You, I, okay. I mean, and, and you were not alone. A lot of people got a kick out of this when he was doing it. It's obviously like, an absurd scene, life's rich pageant, all of that stuff. People were taking photos and laughing, uh, sure. pointing at him. At one point, the beach patrol who was monitoring him was uh, actually, someone got out an iPhone or something and started playing the absolute banger <laughs> of the Halloween uh, theme music. Um, also, I want to note here, a little, little, little peek behind the, uh, behind the curtain. I think Steve put the show doc together, and he wrote, uh, attorney wears Mike Myers costume on the beach, which oh, is something- guy. Which is something in, some, something entirely different. Uh, didn't mean to put Steve on blast there. <laughs> but anyway, um, not everybody loved it as much as you would seem to, Amber. Uh, some At some point, someone called the cops, not kind of getting that he was referencing a specific sort of, you know, famous movie character. 
I can actually- see. I, I can see that though, right? Like, if you haven't watched those movies and you see some weird-looking guy carrying what, from a distance, probably looks like a real knife, not a fake like costume yeah. knife, you would probably just be like, uh, "I'm gonna have to call somebody for them to check this out." Like, I, I get how. Um, context is everything with these jokes. So if you're a horror movie fan, you would have gotten it immediately. And if you're not, you would have freaked out. I like you like explaining the context of a joke. Like it's some like racially charged thing from the eighties. <laughs> it's just a guy in a costume, but yes, the, the, the context is important. Um, the, he was, but anyway, the point is someone called the cops. He was uh, taken into custody, cited. For, he was given a citation for disorderly conduct. And eventually released. Uh, as you say, the knife and the blood on it were fake. Uh, there's a video out there. It's pretty, like, it's, I mean, it's, it's not even accurate to say it's creepy. It's really just kind of richly absurd. I would say uh, my favorite part wasn't even the video. There were some earlier pictures before uh, police got involved where he's just, like, solemnly standing by a pier watching the roiling ra- waves in front of him. It just, it's really, it's great. Yeah, well, one one person's solemnly standing looking at the surf is another person's looming and waiting True. to kill me. Absolutely. So um, I did want to like, ask yeah. you a question before we talk about like yeah. why this guy even bothered to do this other than just the fun of it, I guess. Yeah. Um, I think that you and I have talked about how I watched all of Midnight Mass, the new horror anthology show yeah. on Netflix, and you had started it. And then I, I knew we were going to talk about this story. And I was thinking there is this spoils nothing for people who haven't watched there's a there's a beach in that movie, and there's some scenes of very looming, um, menacing people on the beach. So it immediately like tied into this, and I was like, oh, if this guy had only done it a few weeks later, he could have been far more like in the zeitgeist. That's right. Yeah, he's he would be more current with his references, which yeah. is which which I am all for. Um, the this guy Metzger seems to be a, like a little bit of a character. I actually couldn't find much about his his law work. Um, so, I mean, he's like, he's got his own little shop in Texas there, but he put a post on Facebook after this incident kind of blew up local media. And he said, it, basically, his explanation for doing it was uh, he was trying to, quote, bring positive vibes to the gloom and doom <laughs> out there, generating some laughter, helping people crack a smile and restoring our faith in humanity through humor is 100% what I'm about. This is sort of broken grammar here. Uh, he continued... It's all I've been about my entire life. My methods might not work for everyone, but I guarantee I'll please more than I'll piss off. Uh, now, he may be right about that, but it only takes to piss off one person to get you uh, smoked by the cops, uh, as it turns out. Um, you know, do you think the best way to restore faith in humanity is to dress up like an iconic <laughs> movie slasher? I, uh, it's a it's a really specific way to go about that. I mean, again, I'm probably the target audience as a horror movie lover, but... That's a fun juxtaposition. Like, you know what humanity needs? I think they need to see me dressed up with a fake knife and some blood. Yeah. No, my my preferred method of restoring faith in humanity is doing uh, a podcast about the legal news. And I that's that's that's, that's our contribution. Absolutely. That's the truth I live every day. Uh-huh. He did have a he did have a funny uh, uh one more quote to local media where he said that when they when the cops cuffed him and and took off uh the mask it it felt like an episode of Scooby Doo, which really made me <laughs> laugh because that's exactly what happens at the end of every <laughs> Scooby Doo episode. Uh, you know, um, he seemed pretty lighthearted about it. He was, I mean, he was maybe definitely possible he was doing it for clout. Uh, can't sure. that that cannot be ruled out in today's day and age. Uh, Mark Metzger, uh, you're a weirdo. Thanks for uh, contributing to the pod. I guess 
I mean, happy start of October, everybody. That's a, that's a great way to kick us off into my favorite time of year. Thanks for being with me today, Alex. Thank you, Amber. Quite enjoyed it. See you next week. We also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our graphic designer, Chris Yates, and our contributing reporters this week, Danny Cass, Ryan Davis, and Frank Runyon. And also a big shout out to our guest, Jimmy Hoover. Check out his show, The Term. They've come back this week as well. They're going to get you all set up week to week with all the SCOTUS news you need. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. And if you like Pro Se, leave us a written review on your favorite podcast platform. That helps everybody else find us. And if you want to read more about any of the many things we've talked about today, check out our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you back here next week.